All right, we are keeping our young people in here with us. I know they love going to junior church, but right now we are taking a break from that. And let's all pray that this craziness settles down soon. Normal life. <laughs> Am I the only one that wants, the, wants normal life back? Acts chapter 20 in your Bibles, please. If you're using one of the black Bibles that you find there in the seats, you're going to find today's text on page 588. Page 588, if you choose to want, use one of those Bibles that are provided. We're going to be considering Acts 20, verses 1 through 16. And I would encourage you to follow along in the text of Scripture. You will be helped to be able to read uh, along with what we are reading as we learn together from God's Word. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Now, sometimes we will read the entire passage at the outset. This morning, we're just going to kind of march through it a little bit at a time and give some explanation and um, walk through it um, that way. So we will read the passage as we, as we progress through this morning's uh, message. But let me invite you um, to just bow with me and ask for God's help as we consider this, message, this passage, which teaches us that we accomplish God's work through the mundane activity of faithful work. We accomplish God's work through the mundane activity of faithful work. Let's ask for God's help. Our gracious God and Father, we are humbled before your word. We recognize that in ourselves, we really have nothing to offer. We have no good thing that we can bring to you that will satisfy you, but through Jesus Christ, you are satisfied. And as we just sang, we rest even this morning in Christ alone. And so, humbled by that reality, we come to your word today to learn. And we pray that even as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, that your Holy Spirit would open to our understanding and apply to our hearts this, your holy inspired word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, rewind for me quickly in your minds. We are now in the, in the right in the throes of the action in the book of Acts. If you've been with us um, here at North Hills, we go through verse by verse, passage by passage, chapter by chapter, and we have been progressing our way through the book of Acts. Now the Acts, uh, it's come, sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles, we made the point at the very beginning that the book of Acts really could be titled the acts of the risen Savior through chosen men. And that's really what it is. It's Jesus' continued work in the world as the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, goes forward to all of the known world. This is an exciting message. The message that the apostles, that the, the disciples were taking to others was such an exciting message that they were willing to die for it. And in fact... Of the apostles that followed Jesus, 11 out of 12 of them would ultimately give their lives for giving this good news of Jesus. And so Paul, who is the, the missionary, the, the apostle to the Gentiles, was really the one who, who forged the gospel into other people groups besides the Jews. Remember that in the first part of Acts, really the focus is on Jerusalem, what is taking place in Jerusalem. But what we learn beginning in Acts 13 is that the gospel is for all people and that God is doing a special work throughout the world and, and really Paul becomes that main instrument that God uses 
to expand the gospel all throughout Asia Minor and beyond. Well, the message is exciting because of the content of the gospel, and so we never want to take for granted that we're clear in what we mean. We want to make explicitly clear what the gospel is. Understand that the scripture teaches that you and I are in a state of separation from God, that there is a barrier between us and God. There's a chasm between us and God, and and the reason that we don't have right relationship with God is because of this thing called sin. Sin is that which separates us from fellowship with God. And so we have broken fellowship. In fact, not only are we uh, separated from God in this life, but we will be for all eternity. One of the joys that heaven is spoke of in heaven is being in the presence of God. But we do not deserve to be in God's presence. So something must be done. Something must be, a penalty must be paid for my sin and for your sin. And that penalty that was paid was provided in Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, not the life that you and I live, but a life that was perfectly pleasing to the Father. But he was killed on a terrible cross. And he died, not for his own sin, but for my sin and for your sin. He was buried and he rose again the third day. And when he rose again, he signified that he has the authority to offer forgiveness of sin to all who will come to him in faith and repentance. Faith is that idea of depending completely on the work of Jesus Christ. Repentance is is closely coupled with it. It is turning from my way, from my sin, from my self-dependence in order to trust completely in Jesus. And so when Jesus rose again, he provided redemption. Well, that's an exciting message. And it's a message that that so permeated the hearts of the early believers that nothing would stop them from spreading this message all over the known world. And that's what the book of Acts is about. It's an exciting book. There's a lot in the book of Acts that we see that is spectacular. It is is wonderful to see the, the marvelous work of God as the gospel spreads. And so we see a lot of exciting and spectacular things in the book of Acts. But we arrive this morning at a passage that kind of isn't all that exciting. I mean, except for the, the, the part of the story that Pastor Dan told us about the, you know, the guy falling out the window and getting resurrected. With that aside, really, Acts 20, the whole chapter, is pretty mundane. It's actually almost like a, a, a travel journal that chronicles this happened, then this happened, then this happened. We are now at the end of the third and final missionary journey of Paul. The only other journey that he will take is the one that will take him to his death. All three of Paul's journeys only cover about 15 years of time. And obviously, Paul accomplished a lot in a very short period of time. And we kind of get that sense in chapter 20 because it's this rapid fire um, approach to what happened. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. So in this relatively ordinary chapter of Acts, I've, I've chosen to, to title my message, Don't Fall Asleep in Church, and Other Mundane Advice from the Book of Acts. Uh, and that's really what this chapter summarizes for us, that we, we accomplish God's work, but it's through the mundane activity of faithfulness. So here we are in Acts 20, beginning in verse uh, 1, after the uproar had ceased. Now you remember 
Just last week, we looked at this uproar that took place in Ephesus. Everywhere Paul goes, sooner or later, opposition follows. And in Ephesus, there was a good reception. In fact, Paul ministered there for two years before he was, he was run out of town. We looked at the uprising. We looked at how God kind of miraculously quelled that riot, and they were delivered safely. The uproar had ceased, and Paul called the disciples to himself. He embraced them and departed to go to Macedonia. All right, so Paul discerns that there's this, this risk to the believers in Ephesus because he's there. I mean, Paul is a lightning rod. Right? Everywhere Paul goes, opposition follows him. So he perceives that it's probably time to move on. Um, as we pointed out last week, Paul is not taking unnecessary risks. Now, Paul is always at risk. He's always on the front lines of the gospel. He is no coward. He's not running just because he's afraid. He is doing so out of wisdom. I mean, think about it. The church now is well-grounded. Leadership had been trained. And it's to the point now where this church in Ephesus is able to sustain itself, and he is able to move on to the region of Macedonia. So I would just take a couple quick things from this. First of all, we must use wisdom. There's there's nothing heroic about being foolish. Now, we should be willing to incur risk for the cause of the gospel. And in fact, especially in in the pioneering work of the gospel, going where the gospel is not, it is dangerous. There's That is just the reality. And so we should be willing to risk ourselves for the cause of gospel advancement. But you'll notice here that Paul is not taking a risk unnecessarily. He is not taking a risk that produces no benefit. He's to the point here where the church can move forward, and it is best for the gospel's advancement for him to move on. And so he is exercising wisdom and discernment here. Those are not always easy decisions. God has not given us a spirit of fear but of love and power and of a sound mind. And so our decisions should be informed not by fear, but should be informed by wisdom. I think sometimes, though, we're willing to take unnecessary risks because we see ourselves as indispensable to a cause. Aren't we tempted to think, yeah, without me, this wouldn't wouldn't go forward, right? Um, We're dispensable. (laughs) We're dispensable to, to God's, work. And if something happened to me as the pastor or to Pastor Dan as, as another one of the pastors of this church, by God's grace, this church could move forward. I hope you would at least have a little bump in the road, but, but, but really, you don't need us. What's important is God's work that he is doing. Well, Paul recognizes this, and he comes to the point where, where he's, he's trained his own replacements, and he moves on. So now verse 2 with me, if you would. Now, when they had gone over that region, that is Macedonia that was referred to in verse 1, when they had gone over Macedonia and encouraged them with many words. All right, so Luke's wording seems to suggest that they were in Macedonia for a fairly prolonged period of time. It was probably during this time that the gospel entered a province called Lyricum. This is in the northern, the northwestern corner of the Balkan Peninsula, all the way at the top left-hand corner if you're looking at this map up here. This is present-day Albania. 
We see it referenced in Romans 15 and in 2 Timothy 4, where Titus is, is mentioned as returning to this area. Well, he cannot return to an area if he hadn't been there in the first place, and it's probably during this time that this area was evangelized. There's a major roadway that cuts right across this peninsula um, called the Via Ignatia or the Ignatian Way. It was a major roadway of that day. And so it's possible that Paul actually traveled across the Balkan Peninsula and evangelized during this time that the scripture speaks about him being in Macedonia. It's also possible that he sent some others. We know Titus was in that region And so perhaps Titus by himself or Titus with a few others um, were missionaries in this area. We don't know exactly all the details of Paul and and who was where at what time, but it seems likely from the scriptural clues that his ministry in Macedonia lasted for a year or a year and a half. So if you're a, a history buff and you're following your timeline, we're probably looking at the summer of A.D. 56, through the about the end of the year, A.D. 57, somewhere in that timeline. And so this is where Paul is evangelizing Macedonia. And by the way, sometime while he was in Macedonia, probably while he was in Philippi, Paul met Titus. He, he, he uh, connected with Titus, who brought him good news about the church at Corinth. And you'll remember that there are a couple letters written to the church in Corinth. And we conclude that it is probably during this time that Paul wrote what we now call 2 Corinthians. The second letter, actually it was probably the third letter uh, to the Corinthian church. So verse 2, again, now when they had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came south. Um, to Greece, more specifically Corinth, and stayed there three months. So Paul moves down the peninsula to the south and comes to Corinth in Greece. Perhaps other places that um, he visited as well, but we do know, of course, that he spent considerable time in Corinth. We're now probably to the winter of 57 to 58 uh, AD. So while he was in Greece, this is before he took his final trip to Jerusalem, Paul wrote the letter to the church in Rome, which we now call the letter to the church in Rome, we now call Romans, right? Verse, uh, I'm back in verse 3 again. Um, When the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, so the plan was to sail through the Aegean Sea and eastward to return to land near Jerusalem. But they got word of a plot to kill them, uh, a plot to kill them at sea. So he decides instead to return back north on foot up towards Macedonia. Um, Before this happens, we see that they gathered at Corinth for the return uh, return to Jerusalem along with representatives from the church. Now, if you look at verse 4, Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, Aristarchus, Segundus, the Thessalonian, Gaius of Derbe, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus of Asia, 
What this is, is this is a grocery list of representatives from all the regions that had been evangelized. Now, this may go way back into the recesses of your Bible study, but you might recall that Paul, during this time, was collecting a, an offering to take back to the church in Jerusalem because they were experiencing a famine. And so what this is, is this is all the churches gathering together for a unified cause. All the main centers of Gentile mission were represented here in this list. The notable exception, by the way, would be Corinth. We know Paul was collecting funds for the needy church in Jerusalem, and these are probably representatives of the, rep, uh, of the respective churches that are now bringing a financial gift to help the church in Jerusalem. Now, I see a couple things here just quickly of note. When you look at the names and the nationality of the names in this list, you have to note something. Now, when we read it, they're all, they're all unusual names to us. None, none of them, they all seem foreign, if you will. But a reader of the, of the early church would have recognized the names and the locations. This is a very diverse group. These are churches that are very different from one another. They're spread out geographically, yet they are all coming together. Despite their diversity, God is working amongst these early churches. And, and this is God's intention from the beginning, to bring together a people from every tribe and tongue and nation, a people that are not unified by superficial things, but unified by Christ. A people who are diverse in ethnicity and culture and background and language, but who are nonetheless unified because of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so closely related to that, I noticed the cooperation. We've noted before that the churches in the early days were independent but they were interdependent. That is to say, they, they cared for one another. Even though that church is in a different place, ministering to a different group of people, there was a love amongst the churches for one another. And so in, in the midst of all of this, this diversity around the known world, there was a unity amongst the churches because they had Christ in common. This is exactly what we see Christ praying for his disciples in John 17. I do not pray for these alone. As Christ prays over his disciples, he says to the Father, I'm not praying just for these ones that are under the sound of my voice, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's the first century church. That's, that's us who have, who have since believed on Christ because of the word of the apostles. He says that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that you also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So Christ prays during his high priestly prayer in John 17 that the, that the unity of the church will demonstrate to an unbelieving world the reality of Christ. Christ says to his disciples in John 13, by this we'll all know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And may I just submit to you, that is what we see in the early church. We see people who have love for one another, who care for one another. And do you remember, do you remember how in the book of Acts, this, this Jewish church, this church in Jerusalem was kind of 
really hesitant to evangelize people outside their people group. You remember that? You remember all the biases that Peter had to get over? Well, now, in an ironic twist, it is the Gentile churches that are gathering together a collection, sending that to the needy church in Jerusalem. Isn't it beautiful how God works to knit people together who naturally might be divided for superficial reasons? But God works in their midst. Miles and I were just having coffee a couple weeks ago with another pastor in the area, and we were, we were discussing the strife, the tension that exists in our country right now. And I don't know about you, but I am heartbroken over what we are kind of agonizing through as a country. And I actually think that being heartbroken is, is the first right response. Um, and I don't pretend, none of us, I think, pretend to have all the answers. But I do know this, that the church of Christ is to provide an example of what it looks like for people to love one another. To, to demonstrate the good news of Jesus living in our lives. I mean, the world should be able to look at the church and go, something's going on over there that's weird. Like these people are all united together. They don't have any really superficial reason to be so united, but, but they're, they love each other. And that should be the answer to the high priestly prayer that we just saw in John 17. And, and just by the way of note, I'm going to, in a couple weeks, um, just really take one Sunday sermon to just kind of delve deeply into all this. I think it's just one of those things that's going on in our world that, that just needs to be addressed. So that's coming. I'm working on it. It's in a couple weeks. I note here that there's a tremendous love within the churches, but even amongst the churches. There's an interdependence here. There's a care. There's a love for one another. And I would just note that gospel ministry is best done as a team. It's not about me. It's not about you individually. It's about what God is doing with other people that we are linked arm in arm with. And that's what we see demonstrated in, in this message here in, in Acts 20. So there's a change in travel plans. And um, then they accompany Paul to Macedonia, verse 5. These men, right, so this, this list of people who are who are from Gentile churches, who are bringing this offering. These men go ahead and wait for us, Luke says. Luke's part of this group at Troas. So the group splits up. Um, it seems from the pronouns that Luke stayed with Paul, probably with Silas and Timothy. Um, and the others go ahead to Troas. And the reason is because the Jewish members of the band, so that would have been Paul, Silas, Timothy, they wanted to stay and observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Others go on to Troas, and then they come and, and catch up. So verse 6, we are to verse 6 now. We sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. By the way, this is the first very clear mention of Christians meeting on the first day of the week. So they are now, they're gathering on Sundays, and this seems to be already the tradition. So by this point in the history of Acts, this is the tradition of the church. You may wonder when the, the tradition shifted from the Sabbath 
to Sunday. It was very early on in, in church history. Um, Paul, ready to depart, I'm in verse 7, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. This is the account that Pastor Dan just told our children about. Um, there were many lamps in the upper room when they were gathered together. Now let me explain to you, keep in mind the culture of the day. There were six days to work. The seventh day was a Sabbath rest. And Sunday is the first day of the week. We tend to think of, you know, getting up on Sunday, sleeping in a little bit on Sunday morning, getting up, taking our shower, taking our time, getting a good breakfast, getting our stomachs full, and going to church kind of when we feel like getting there. All right? The early Christians had worked an entire day. This is like going to church on Monday evening for us. They had worked an entire day, and now, hey, Paul's in town. He's getting ready to leave town. This is his last opportunity to address us. They gather together on the first day of the week, and Paul begins to preach. And he preaches, and he preaches, and it's hot, and it's crowded, and it's a little smoky in the room from the lamps. They didn't have the comfortable situation that we do in the Western world, but we're very easily dissuaded. Have you ever been to a third world country and visited one of their worship services? If you haven't and you have the opportunity, you should. It will strengthen your heart in a way that you just cannot describe. I've been in, I've been in worship services where people will trudge through the mud for an hour to get to church. They will ride bicycles, they will ride a donkey, they will come from the other side, they will do whatever they need to to get to the worship service. And then that service will drag on and on and on, and us Westerners are going, oh my word, when is this thing going to end? But they're just enjoying being with each other, singing praises to God, hearing the preaching of the word. And I'll tell you, if you get up and you preach for 20 minutes and you quit, they're going to like protest. Like, no, we we did not trudge from across town through the mud to hear a 20-minute sermonette. They they want to hear the preaching of the word. They want to be together. They want to... And and this is kind of how I picture the early church. It wasn't easy. It wasn't comfortable. They didn't have air conditioning. It was hot. It was crowded. There were bugs flying all over. And so one young man kind of purchased himself... In the window, in a verse 9, it says, In a window sat a certain man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. And, and this next phrase is interesting that Luke says, He was overcome by sleep. Now, that's a colorful word because the language indicates that he's fighting, but he eventually lost. <laughs> like, he lost the battle, and he sinks into this sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, now, the New King James, which many of you are using, is very gracious to Paul with that translation. Um, The New American Standard says, Paul kept on talking. The King James, the old King James says, as Paul was long preaching, and then probably the NIV is the least gracious of all of them, and says, Paul talked on and on. Does your preacher ever talk on and on? Don't, Don't answer that. So what happens, verse 9, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. So there's this tragedy that takes place. He falls asleep, falls out of the window, lights on his head on the pavement below, and he's dead. 
Now keep in mind, Luke is recording this. Luke, the physician, knew when somebody was dead. And so what follows is not a surprise twist, but it's a miracle. Verse 10, Paul went down, fell on him, embraced him, and then he says, Do not trouble yourself, he is alive. When he come up, they broke in bread. This is the way that the early church spoke of the Lord's Supper. It talked a long while, even till daybreak. So the service continues until sunrise and the fellowship. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. They were very heartened. They were tremendously encouraged to see this miracle that God had done. So that's, that's the big event that takes place in this whole passage. Everything else is fairly business as usual. Verses 13 through 15 chronicle the return trip. Now they're now headed to Jerusalem. I won't take time to read all those, but notice in the last part of verse 16, it says he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So, so Paul sees himself as on a timeline to try to get back to Jerusalem by the celebration of Pentecost. Now, I will confess to you that as I studied this passage, Usually, kind of my, my course of action is to really you know, get a hold of the passage, really understand all of the things that are taking place on it, kind of structure it for our understanding, and then to ask myself, okay, how does this apply to my situation? How does this apply to us as a church? And I look at this passage, and I'm like, it's just a list of stuff that happened. Like, what do you do with that? This is just normal stuff. It's the normal, everyday stuff of ministry. And, it, and in some ways, I actually think that that's kind of the lesson. The lesson, the, the, the thing that I find most interesting in this passage it, there's, there's, is that there's nothing terribly interesting. It's, it's a travel journal. You, you're looking at, you know, it's like going through pictures of somebody's trip. And then we did this, and then we did this, and then we did this. I mean... Decisions were faced, journeys were made, miles were covered, messages were preached, believers were encouraged. Nothing really all that special. Now, the story of raising a young man from the dead who fell out of the window, that's, that's pretty intriguing. But even the circumstances behind that are rather typical. He fell asleep in church. I mean, that's happened before. It'll happen again. Never here, just... You know, it, it happens. And this is a normal human predicament. And so I think that it is important for us to recognize that while there are the mountaintop peaks in the book of Acts, there are the exciting and intriguing and, and spectacular things that God has done that much ministry is actually done kind of in the cracks. It's, it's done in between the mountaintop experiences. It's done by the day-to-day -day normal ministry. I believe I read this illustration in the book that the men are reading for, um, the, the, the men just completed for um, our book study together. So men, if you've heard this illustration before, I think that's probably why. Um, John Paul Jones is a name that is known well in American history, and in particularly U.S. naval recruits know the story of John Paul Jones. He's the famed captain of the American Revolution, and the odds were against him. The British opponents uh, came alongside in their ship and they solicited his surrender. And his reply that has 
echoed through the annals of history is what? I have not yet begun to fight. It was this, it was this strong defiance that he would not give up. And it's widely known that John Paul Jones won the victory that day. But the reason that he won it is, is more obscure. As the British and American ships were fighting, gunnel to gunnel, close warfare, almost hand-to-hand at times, an American sailor took a handheld bomb and he climbed the rigging of their ship. He then crossed over to the rigging of the British ship and he dropped the bomb, which bounced and rolled underneath into the underbelly of the British ship where it hit a it landed in a barrel of gunpowder and blew the British ship to smithereens. The name of the sailor who, who famously and, and almost single-handedly won the battle that day was, we have no idea. <laughs> we don't know. Just some guy, some sailor who took it upon himself to perform this feat. The credit for changing the course of the battle and changing the course of history and making John Paul famous goes to an unknown, obscure man who changed history. So when you were young, what was your goal in life? If, if you are young, what is your goal in life? Many of us, we, we were, we were going to change the world. Our burning desire was to impact others in such a, a profound way that that you know, the, the rest of human history would recognize the work that we had contributed. A, a, a noble desire? Well, perhaps. Unrealistic? Yeah, probably. <laughs> so it's true that most of us won't have the indelible imprint on the world like the Apostle Paul did. But a, a more mature, and I would say perhaps a more biblical understanding, is a very simple principle that's taught in Scripture called faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 4 says it this way, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Ecclesiastes says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. There's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave to which you are going. There is a beautiful simplicity in what is required of us as God's people. These admonitions are simple, and so they're profound. God sometimes does work in spectacular ways, but generally he doesn't. God's work is more like a weaver who who brings together many individual threads to accomplish a beautiful tapestry. It's relieving to know that God does not call us to change the world. That's simply beyond our control. He calls us to perform our daily tasks for the glory of God. That means the everyday, dare we even say the mundane tasks. Building spreadsheets, inventorying products, reviewing reports, grading papers, driving a delivery truck, doing the dishes, all of them have eternal significance. Not because those tasks are inherently glamorous, 
but because they are in the providence of God fulfilling a sacred duty. And so faithfulness may call us to a mountaintop experience of speaking before a body of global leaders, but more likely, it will just call you and me to speak wisely to our neighbors and family. You may have the opportunity to shape the thinking of millions. More likely, your task is to influence those around you. So be encouraged this morning that whether your calling seems momentous or small, you are shaping eternity by laboring exactly where God has you. That is the glory of the mundane. We accomplish God's work through the mundane activity of faithful work. And so your stitch in this tapestry that God is weaving may seem small. But in the hands of the master weaver, it's important. And so be faithful today. You, like an unknown sailor on John Paul's ship, might have an explosive effect on eternity. We accomplish God's work through the mundane activity of faithful labor. God help us to be reminded that our work, although it may seem mundane to us, mundane to us, is really what you are calling us to to accomplish your purposes. Help us, Lord, to be humble and submit to that. And help us to be faithful today, tomorrow, next week, to continue the day-to-day tasks that you've called us to and watch how you use those things for your glory. I'm going to give you a moment to remain bowed before the Lord, and I would just suggest that in these moments together, you submit, you repent of sin, and you ask God's help in applying what we've learned this morning.